Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In thinking about our readings for today, I came across a story. The junior Sunday school teacher at a Baptist church asked her eight eager 10-year-old students if they would be willing to give a million dollars to their missionaries. Yes, they all screamed enthusiastically. So the teacher said, would you all give a thousand dollars? Again, the students eagerly shouted, yeah, we would totally give a thousand dollars. How about a hundred dollars? The students, oh yes, we would do that. And then the teacher said, how about just one dollar? Who would give one dollar to our missionaries? And everybody raised their hand except for one little boy. And so the teacher says, Johnny, why didn't you say yes this time? And Johnny kind of stammers and looks sheepish and says, well, I actually have a dollar. <laughs> the story resonates because we're really good at giving in theory, but we aren't good at giving when push comes to shove. And our readings have to do with that theme of giving. And it's an interesting combination because in my mind, the reading from 1 Kings and Hebrews have little to do with what we give, but what God gives to us, which makes sense because we can't give without him first giving to us. But then our final reading in Mark does address how it is that we are to give using the poor widow as an example. Many of you know that I did my thesis for my MDiv about the Hagar and Ishmael story. And as I was thinking about the readings, particularly our Old Testament reading, uh, I was reminded what I love so much about the Hagar and Ishmael story. Because in that story, Hagar and Ishmael are sent out from Abraham's camp. And they're in the wilderness where they're wandering until they run out of supplies and things are looking desperate. And Hagar is about to leave Ishmael under a bush to die because he, he's dehydrated. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and points her to a well that's nearby, opening her eyes so that she can see it. So the story is ultimately about God providing for those people that nobody else was providing for, that no one was caring about, and it's such a radical insight into how it is that God cares for people. And we see a parallel to that story in 1 first, in first Kings 17. There's a drought in the land of Israel. And the reason for this drought, which is mentioned in preceding chapters, is that the people of Israel had fallen worship to Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility and crops. So if you wanted to get pregnant, you would sacrifice to Baal. If you were a farmer and you wanted your crops to grow this, this uh, spring, you would sacrifice to Baal. And oftentimes uh, that involved crude acts of cultic prostitution and all the things that God is opposed to in uh, the Levitical laws that he hands down as a way of Israel being separate from that kind of behavior. But Israel had nevertheless fallen into worshiping this false god. And so as a punishment, God took away exactly what it is the people were trying to garner by their false worship. He took away the rain. He took away their ability to grow crops. And so during this drought, Elijah has been spending time in the wilderness where God miraculously provided bread, meat, and water to him, much like he had done to the Israelites in the wilderness during their journeys. But at this point in the narrative, the brook has dried up because God has a plan for Elijah, something that he wants Elijah to do. And so it was time for Elijah to move on. 
which again provides us a backdrop for God's actions here. God is showing readers and the people who were alive at the time his superiority and sovereignty over the gods of the Canaanites. And so Elijah travels to Sidon as the Lord's command. And Sidon was a stronghold for Canaanite worship. So this is kind of ground zero of the, of the Baal infestation in Israel. And so Elijah enters the town and he sees a widow gathering sticks. And he asks her for some water, which she's obliged to get him. But then he asks for some bread. And that gives the widow a pause. Because the widow tells Elijah she doesn't have but a little bit of oil and flour left. And what her plan to do was to gather up the sticks so she could set a fire and make bread for her and her starving son so that they could eat it together and then die. Much like Hagar was about to leave Ishmael under the bush for him to die. And Elijah tells her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterwards something for yourself and your son. He's asking the widow to exercise a great deal of faith here, because she doesn't really seem to know who he is, and he's asking her to give out of her poverty. He could just be a con man. He could just be mooching off the poor and vulnerable in society like prosperity gospel preachers do today when they, they exploit those on fixed incomes who can barely afford food and medicine already and then they're exploiting them for, for money on top of the, those expenses that they already have to pay. But Elijah is a true prophet and so he's not exploiting her. And the promise given to the widow by the Lord that the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until that day of the Lord that the Lord sends rain upon the earth is upheld. Have you ever noticed how often God miraculously provides for his people using bread? It happens a lot in the Old Testament and it will be important later on, so flag that in your head. From our Old Testament lesson though, we go on to Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. And this lesson continues a discussion that we've been having over the past few Sundays about Christ as the great high priest and what exactly that means. In it, he contrasts, the, the author of the book of Hebrews contrasts what we might call types and shadows, as Paul does in Colossians 2.17. So looking back at the Jewish religion, the sacrifices that they made occurred in sanctuaries made by human hands. And they had to be repetitive, like Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, uh, which had to occur every single year so that all of the people's sins could be atoned for. The victim of the sacrifice was something other. The victim of the sacrifice wasn't the thing that committed the sin. It was an animal, a goat or a bull featured in the sacrifice. It hadn't committed any sin. The people were the ones who had sinned, but God made provision for them uh, through the sacrifice. Still, this form of substitution isn't really perfect and had to be done constantly. In fact, the next chapter of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But all these types, all these institutions, all these liturgies and rituals, they look forward to something, the culmination of all things in Christ. Christ is not in a sanctuary made by human hands. He's in heaven, in the presence of the Father. His sacrifice is not made repetitively. Hebrews 7.27 says, Unlike the other high priests, Christ has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. 
And of course, by offering himself, he wasn't offering something other. He wasn't offering the blood of an animal. He was offering himself. Because as Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same thing. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. Because Christ stood in solidarity with us, taking on our flesh, our sinful flesh, he took the punishment on our behalf and defeated Satan, sin, and death. And as a result, we can share and receive the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the last verse of our reading is appropriate because in the next few weeks, we're gearing up for Advent, the time where we meditate on the incarnation and we prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas. It looks forward to a final deliverance, a second advent, when we might be freed from all the forces of darkness permanently. It says Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the author of Hebrews clearly wants us to see the apex of the Old Testament sacrificial system is found in Christ. Specifically, we find this in his blood and in the water which poured out from his body on the cross, anticipating the great chief sacraments of the church, baptism and the Holy Eucharist. In baptism, we're baptized into the death of Christ and the newness of life afforded by the resurrection. And in the Eucharist, we receive the great sacrifice of Christ offered once and for all for us while simultaneously offering ourselves at the altar. And that leads us to the gospel lesson, which has two parts to it. It's called a diptych. These parts must be read together and compared over and against one another. The first panel is Jesus' warning to the followers that they not be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honors at banquets. And they want it to be at the expense of the vulnerable as they devour widows' houses to gain misplaced preeminence. Their concern for the law comes at the expense of the other, which actually violates the very principle that the law had been founded upon. The Pharisees are stuck in a mindset of human striving that leaves them trapped in the shadow of a distorted legal system that flies in the face of the Shema that Father Jim talked so much about last week and that he read this morning at the beginning of the service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the Pharisees have done the exact opposite of what it is that the Shema tells us to do. So against the Pharisees, we're introduced to a widow who in the midst of all these rich people, leaving large sums of money in the treasury for everyone to see, quietly drops two small copper coins worth just a penny into the treasury. And Jesus draws the attention of the disciples not to all the people leaving great endowments to the treasury or uh, large donations, but to the widow. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had all she had to live on. Unlike the Pharisees, 
the widow exhibits this mentality of giving out of poverty. She's not coming to be seen. She's not coming to check off boxes. She's not coming to earn anything. She's demonstrating a proper understanding of the Shema that was mentioned earlier in this chapter of Mark. Her giving is from the inside out. She's given herself totally to God and therefore devotes all that she has to him. This is true religion. It's not the show of the Pharisees. It's not about recognition. It's not about prestige. It's about coming to God, bearing all of ourselves, knowing that only he can take this broken, ugly, sinful people and make us whole. And so today, in our service, as we approach the most holy altar, let us come recognizing two simultaneous realities. The first is that in the Eucharist, God provides for us. He provides for us like he provided for Hagar and Ishmael in their desperation. He provides for us like he provided for the Israelites wandering in the desert. He provides for us like he provided for the widow and her son in 1 Kings 9. He provides for us by giving us his own flesh to be marred, broken, beaten, and murdered on our behalf. So maybe you come today crippled by your own sin or hurt by the words and actions of others. And so we come to the altar once again, recognizing that we can't do it on our own, that healing is not something that we do, but that we recognize our need for his provision. And in this Eucharist, like in all others, as John Wesley, the great Anglican preacher observed, we receive the forgiveness of our sins, present strength, and the refreshing of our souls. But the second reality of the Eucharist is that parallel of the widow who gives her two small copper coins and that is that when we approach the altar we don't just receive but we also give we give ourselves to God Romans 12 1 present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship so we sacrifice ourselves on the altar not because we have anything of value uh, to God. God doesn't need us in, in any capacity, but precisely the opposite. We sacrifice ourselves because at the altar, we have a keen awareness of our inability to make it on our own. Thomas Aquinas wrote the Summa Theologica, which is a huge set of Christian writings, but it's actually incomplete. And the reason that it's incomplete is that uh, the story goes, anyways, that he had a vision and God asked him, what, what do you want? And um, much like Solomon you had the vision and God asks the same question. And, and Aquinas says, only you, God, is what I want. And so uh, af after this experience, he, he just kind of gave up his writing because he said it was like straw. What could he possibly do uh, to, to contribute anymore? He just wanted to know God. And, um, and there's something really beautiful about that because we realize when we come into the presence of God that all our strivings and achievements pale in comparison to knowing and loving God. So let us receive great comfort in the fact that we have a God who loves us, who takes care of us just like he's taking care of all those who have come before us. Let us find comfort and forgiveness and let us always remember what we prayed from Psalm 146 this morning. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. 
The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.